As we continue to worship the Lord, uh, would you turn in your Bibles or uh, turn on your cell phones with your Bible app? We always have to add that now. And uh, follow along with me as we read from 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll be reading the first 11 verses uh, this morning. But before we do that, let's pray together. Our great God in heaven, how dare we think we could come into your presence on our own. And sometimes we would think that. But Lord, you are so great and mighty and good. You are so merciful. You've come down to make us holy. Begin to teach us again. Remind us again today of your glory and your goodness. And to follow you and to surrender to you holy. We ask this, Lord, so your name can be lifted up. Not only where we live, but where all your people are all around the world. And every congregation that believes in your name and takes your word and speaks it, Lord, bless them. May your name be lifted up. Do a little work, a great work, beyond our expectations. Even today, we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces woo, excuse me, <laughs> to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Well, that's a happy story. Where would we be without God's presence? Where would the world be without God's presence? We don't see God, so even we believers kind of forget he's there, right? You don't see him, so we forget he's we forget that he's there. We make him look like humans or we believe he acts like us because we don't know who he is. And for some reason, many humans 
look at the universe and, and they see all the connections in the environment, but they can't just say, maybe somebody designed this. They give it to the God of chance, the God of evolution, and, and, and let believe that maybe that's how it all came into place. We foolishly, don't make, we foolishly don't make the connections of how God not only made everything we see, but that he's in charge of it and that he owns it and he cares for it. He designed it. It's all connected to God's goodness and grace. Where would God be? Where would God's people be without God's presence? have a couple references on the PowerPoint. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses was praying to God and he said, God, if you don't, if you don't go with us, don't send us anywhere. You see, in Exodus 32, that was when they had worshipped the, the golden calf and God was so angry. It, God does get angry, by the way. He was so angry that he, he was ready to destroy all of Israel. And Moses prayed, Lord, don't, don't do that. <laughs> you know, and, and, and God said, well, I'm not going to do that. Moses prayed for the people. God said, but you know, Moses, I'm not going to be able to go with you because if I stay too close to you people, I, I, I'm going to hurt you, <laughs> to put it lightly. And Moses says, you got to go with us. What are we going to do without you being present with us? In the bulletin, uh, that great blessing from Numbers expresses it a little differently. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. If, if God's presence isn't with us, if his face isn't turned toward us in favor, oh, we are in trouble. I want you to do one of those neighbor conversations. You people are going to get used to that. But we just read 1 Samuel 4, verses 1 through 11, and God seemed to be very angry with the Israelites, or he was upset. Just take a minute and talk to one another. If you're comfortable with that, you don't have to, but talk to one another. Was God's presence not with Israel anymore, or his face not turned toward them? Yes or no, maybe? Just talk about what's God doing here? What's God doing? What does he want us to learn? So was God's presence with Israel when they lost to the Philistines? Yes or no? What do you think? What's God doing? Talk about it for a minute or two. All right, fun's over. <laughs> now, that's great. How many yeses do I got out there? God's presence had, had, had left. He's gone. Any, anybody? Any, any no's? No, God's still with them. Yeah. Any in-betweeners? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm an in-betweener. Yes and no. You're safe either way. It's just good to be thinking about it. I want to talk about what it means to presume on God. I call it the... 
Um, how do we presume on God's presence? We presume on God when I call it the spoiled brat syndrome. When we assume God's going to bless us no matter what we do because we've believed we're a child of God. So it's all good. So just go do it. And, and related to it is the God will bail me out syndrome. We take unwarranted liberties with God's commands and think there'll be no negative consequences. God's got my back. So there might be a little pain, but it's not going to be that bad because he's with me. He's on my side. And then there's a, I really don't know God syndrome. <laughs> we make choices based on and decisions based on a little bit of information, but we really haven't been pursuing God. We really don't know God's heart or his character or his will. We make choices really based on lies, hell's counsel, the world's counsel, and not God's counsel. 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7, and we're just going to try, I'm going to try and cover most of chapter 4 today. Um, why do you think God recorded these events? They're known as the Ark Chronicles, by the way, because the Ark is the focus of these chapters. God wants us to know him better. <laughs> and God wanted Israel not only to know him, but the Philistines were going to be learning some lessons about who God was too. And I want you to know, God wants us to know that he will not allow weak or untrue relationships with him to remain unchecked. If you're faking it, he's not going to let it go on. If you're wandering away from him and you're really his child, he's not going to let it go on. And God's glorified when he saves those who turn to him for mercy. And God is glorified when he judges those who refuse his counsel. We're going to learn how powerfully, how powerful, how sin is so powerfully deceptive, and we're going to remember that God loves those He disciplines. So this morning, let's be still for a few minutes and know that God is God. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The power of God's presence, his gaze, when he gazes at us in love is so amazing and good, this yoke. The power of his wrath is terrifying. Point one, do not presume that God's favoring presence has no stipulations. So we go back to 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 4, as I turn my Bible back there, we read that the Israelites went out to fight. What is God's presence? Well, we know God is present everywhere. The Psalm, Psalm 139 tells us that. Where can I go and flee from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. So God's everywhere. Not only is God everywhere, but he cares for everything that he's made. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. But we're not talking about God's omnipresence. We're talking about God's special presence with his people. His covenant promise to be with Israel wherever they went. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, there's a great quote uh, 
Moses was reminding, uh, God was reminding Joshua through Moses that don't be afraid, Joshua. I will never leave you or forsake you. So go and be courageous. Deuteronomy chapter 32, and I, I got to read those verses because we sang them this morning, and they're just so beautiful. In Deuteronomy 32, God's pictured like this, caring for Israel. For I commanded you, wrong verse, <laughs> in a desert land, God found Israel. In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its youngs. We're in the shadow of the Lord Almighty, under his wings. The Lord alone led him. Israel, no foreign God was with him. What a picture that God was going to be watching over and caring for his children. That's what we're talking about. But Israel presumed that God was pleased with them. We're the chosen people of Jehovah, of Yahweh. And that was true. True, true. <laughs> but they forgot to read some other parts of Deuteronomy. They, the word was rare. Remember that? The word was rare in these days. And they didn't study Deuteronomy the rest of the chapter because it said that God was going to punish them if they didn't obey, that God would turn away from them and hide his face from them if they disobeyed, if they chased after other gods. So we come to the text today and the, they, they fought a battle with the Philistines who were intruding on the promised land. So they were defending the, the land that God had given them and 4,000 soldiers died. I wonder if they were all bad guys. Maybe some of them were good men, men of faith. Why would God allow that to happen? If God is for us, who can be against us? And they asked a quality question. Why did God bring defeat upon us this day by the Philistines? I mean, he's supposed to be on our side. History had proven it over and over again. Look at Egypt. Look at Jericho. Look at the waters of the Red Sea. Look how the waters of the Jordan River had been divided. God's with us. So why did we lose today? Really, quality question. Bad answer. Bad conclusion. The reason we lost was because we didn't have the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant. Boy, life is hard because of sin, the curse. <laughs> and life gets harder when we ignore God's word, and that's what was going on here. There's dead soldiers because they were ignoring God's word. There's grieving because they ignored God's word. They're making worse decisions now because they didn't know God's word. We have some incredible promises, like in the book of Ephesians, and don't have time to go there, but... We think about how when we believed in the gospel of Christ, that God forgives us, the Holy Spirit comes in and lives with us and seals us for the day of redemption so that we're God's child guaranteed when we believed and he promises to bless us. It's a down payment guaranteeing that one day we're going to be in God's presence in all his glory and we're going to be glor glory glorious too. Wow. That's God's work for me. But sometimes we forget that we have some work to do too. It's called abiding. John chapter 15, I'm the vine, Jesus said, you're the branches. If you don't remain in me, you're not going to bear any fruit. So you got to abide. 
If you love me, you're going to remain in me. You're going to pursue me. You're going to stay connected to me. We have a job to do because apart from him, we can do nothing. We have a responsibility to stay connected. So what we're saying here is, what does God mean when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you? Does it mean all's going to go well, even if I sin, even if I rebel? Does it mean I can be complacent? Does it mean I can ignore God? Understand God's favor. Israel presumed God's face would always be turned toward them, and it wasn't. Don't presume, point number two, that religious activity can substitute for belief in holy living. The Israelites were not wrong by taking that ark into war. You know why? Because God said that that's where his presence was. That's where he met with Aaron in that holy of holy place when Aaron would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle blood on that altar, that, that place where the mercy seat, where the two cherubim were facing each other and they had their wings spread out and they would sprinkle blood on that. That must have been a mess, by the way. You ever thought about that? But it was there that when that high priest, if Aaron came out of the tabernacle, that the people knew that God had accepted their offering, that they had confessed their sins and they were forgiven of all their sins as a nation for another year and they could go on. What an amazing thing. God met him there. God said in 1 Samuel chapter 4, maybe you didn't notice it, but he says, the, comment, the writer here says in verse 4, so the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who was enthroned between the cherubim. So here's this picture of the God being there. So they were right in thinking this is a special thing, this object. It's a reminder that God is present with us. But then he wasn't. <laughs> it's just a wooden box. Two by four, two feet by four feet covered with gold and a lot of blood. Israel's faulty view of God. They brought that ark into the camp and it was like a locker room scene, folks. I mean, I can see it. They're jumping up and down before the game. God's with us now. They were screamed. They were yelled so loud, said the ground shook. The Philistines were responding. I mean, the psychological warfare here. We still scream when we go into battle, whether it's on the football field, the field hockey field, or whatever it is, right? We do it. We get ourselves pumped up. No way we can lose now. God's with us. He's sitting right there. We're going to take that ark out in front. They shouted, and it shook, and they were all excited. But God's face was not turned toward them, and they didn't perceive it. You know what's interesting? They limited God's presence to a good luck charm, to a box. Philistines had wrong views too. <laughs> they thought God, this God of Israel, was a territorial God, like their gods. You know, they had territories. You know what's really cool though? I think about it, the Philistines had a bigger view of God than the Israelites did. The Israelites confined him to a box. Israelites thought at least he had some territory. They had some right views. They knew about God's fame. 
they remembered Egypt. They heard the stories, probably the stories about the walls of Jericho, and they knew God, the God of Israel, had some serious power, and that, that, let the, that motivated them to defend men, be men and fight. We know why God allowed Israel to be defeated that day. The Ark of the Covenant, the holy God of Israel, the mighty God of Israel, the invisible God who was symbolically seated between those two cherubim. Who was there holding that Ark of the Covenant? Do you know? You know their names? Hophni and Phinehas. Two men who God said he was not only displeased with, who were wicked, and had no regard for the Lord, they were the ones holding it. And so they had been told by God to change their ways, to stop doing what they'd been doing. They'd been robbing God, and they were, there was no change. There was no fear of God. The Philistines feared the God of Israel more than the Israelites feared their own God. Who was there? Hophni and Phinehas, two unholy men who had no regard for God, who had no repentance, who did not change, even though the word of God had come to them again and again to do that. There was no care or love for God. Who wasn't there? Samuel. The man that God had said, this is my voice. The one we just read in verse 1 of chapter 4, where we read that, the Samuel's word, and Samuel's word came to all of Israel because the Lord spoke through Samuel. There had been no requesting of God's counsel. There had been no pursuing of God to see, should we go into battle? This downward spiral of Israel in these times of the judges where we're coming, we're coming to the end of that time, it's so spiritually dark. There was no thought about their sinfulness. They thought it was an easy fix. Just get a piece of furniture and everything's going to be okay. Where there is no, word, of, where the, where there is no word, of, word from God, the people perish. And they were perishing. The people of God, I better keep moving here. The people of God remember Joshua's chapter 6. Do you know what happened in Joshua chapter 6? That's when they marched around Jericho. And you know what, what, what was at the front of the parade? The Ark of the Covenant. But they forgot Joshua chapter 7. That's when they got defeated at Ai. And people died. Because of Achan's sin. Because Achan had taken something that was supposed to be reserved for God. And Hophni and Phinehas and Eli had been taking the best meat from God and keeping it for themselves. They were robbing God, something God said was set apart to him. There was no regard and people died. Because of Achan's sin and now because of the nation's sin, but especially Eli. And Hophni and Phinehas. God had openly declared his dis displeasure and no change had taken place. So not 4,000 men died and now another 30,000 men when they went into battle again. What was God doing? He's so ready to be merciful, so ready to forgive, so ready to move us from death to life, to make us more godly, to make us more like Jesus. 
but we turn our own way. I love what Isaiah says. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sin sweeps us away. And that's what's happening to Israel. Their sin is driving them. They're like a dry leaf. God offered a way of escape. He asked them to repent. He asked them to turn to them to confess their sins, but they ignored his word. I see some amazing parallels between this story and the letters that were written to the churches in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. Presumption. The church at Ephesus had fallen. They were doing well, but there were a lot of gaps, and Jesus said, you've lost, you've forgotten your first love. You better know how high the heights from which you've fallen and repent, or your lampstand's going to be removed. The church at Sardis, Jesus says, you have a reputation for being alive but you're dead. Repent or else. These, this section of scripture seems to be a downer. Leslie told me, give them something good <laughs> because there's a lot of bad. And I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. I'm just trying to communicate the tone of the passage. It's darkest before the dawn. I don't even know if that's true. <laughs> but it's a great expression. And it's the truth here. God wants us to know the dark times that these people were going through because he's moving them toward great light, better times, happier days. But <laughs> he tells us these stories for our own good because we can presume like the Israelite that God's happy with us and he may not be. Let me pick on some really easy illustrations for this. Let's pick on the USA. God has certainly blessed our nation. There are people still wanting to come here <laughs> because it's so much better to live here than where they're living. And we are, th I'm so thankful that I'm a citizen of the United States. What liberties and blessings I've had. We've been, but do you ever think that the United States of America presumes anything on God as a nation? Like, I know we were the good guys in World War II. <laughs> but have you ever wondered why every conflict we've been involved in after that has been such a slog and such a drain on us as a people? Is God still happy with us? Is there no sins that we need to confess or come to him as a nation? Is it because, oh God, you know, we support Israel, so you still have to bless us? Or God, because we've been good in the past, our heritage is kind of religious and Christian, that, you know, and we're better than other people, like God loves us more than our enemies? Is that the case? Really? I don't want to get too political, but make America great again. Can I just say, when were we great in God's eyes? Really? Was it when we were enslaving people and using them for our 
for our greatness? Was it when the barons and, uh, used people to dig coal and make steel and paid them poorly and, and kept them poor? Was all the, all the stuff? Is that when we were great? Let me pick on the evangelical church in the USA for a minute. Hey, God is working around the world. God's working in North America. I mean, where the word of God is preached, people are getting saved, and that's amazing. So I don't want to, like, keep pounding us down. But, you know, the church is shrinking in North America. Is God trying to tell us anything? Just food for thought. Like, we have more resources, more money, more theologically trained leaders, and and we just got it all. But our influence is shrinking. Could it be that we're depending more on ourselves and our own wisdom? Our know-how to get things done, to shape things, to create things, rather than God? Because in nations where they have no resources... They don't have video Bible studies. They don't have, hardly anybody has Bibles, and yet the church is exploding and growing. They're being persecuted, and it's growing. Is God trying to tell us anything? Just food for thought. Don't presume that God's judgments or discipline is for others and not us. You ever notice it's always the other people who need Need it to get it. But I want you to know the priest and the nation of Israel, their positions of honor were removed. The consequences of following other gods was coming true. Ignoring God's word was coming true. Real quickly, I want to read the rest of the chapter. Israel was defeated. The ark had been taken. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, arrived, there was Eli sitting on a chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of the uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes were set so that he could not see. He told Eli, I've come just from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? And the tension builds. The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. And when she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you've you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. 
Eli was sitting in that chair when Hannah was praying for a son. And he's sitting in that same chair now and he falls over blind and heavy because he'd been eating a lot of good food that belonged to God. We may not like the news, but let it register for our well-being and soul's people. God will judge those who fake a relationship with him. When we wander away, he loves us too much to let his children go too far. He will discipline us. And that's the good news. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. We often read a passage when we take communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about how we should judge ourselves because Paul says many of you are sick or have fallen asleep because you haven't been judging yourselves and confessing your sins. And you know, this story about Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and the New Testament story about Ananias and Sapphira ought to shake us up and scare us just a little bit. Do you think God doesn't do that anymore? And what I'm saying is every time you get sick, doesn't mean God's after you, that you've done a terrible sin. People don't die because they're sinful and God's judging them all the time. Part of it's just being human. But if life is always hard and difficult, we need to take a look and examine our hearts and our lives. God is not afraid to appear weak to raise up his name in glory. What do I mean by that? He lost a battle. He let his ark get captured. What's God doing? Don't presume. He will let you lose. He will let you get hurt. He will let people who disregard him die in judgment for the glory of his name. When God became flesh and dwelt among us, did he not appear weak? It was like a tender shoot out of dry ground. There was no beauty or majesty in Christ. He was like a sheep led to the slaughter. He doesn't mind appearing weak because he will do a mighty and powerful thing for his honor and glory. God will not endure or suffers the old-fashioned word, presumptuous relationships. Fakes will be revealed and judged. Those who foolishly turn away like the prodigal son, like the nation of Israel, the prodigal son, he will allow hard times to bring them back to their senses, to holiness. God uses blessing and tragedy to shock us into knowledge of who he is. Think of the wow of Hannah's prayer for Samuel. And our prayer was answered. And Samuel was such a blessing to the nation. That's a wow. You know what else was a wow? Hophni and Phinehas dying in the same day, just the way God said it would be. That's a wow. That's like a wake-up call. That's a shocker. That's like, whoa. What about me? <laughs> the wow of God's word. The wow of the ark being captured. <laughs> what is God doing? Are we doomed? Is God's face turned away from us? Is this it? Ichabod, the glory has departed. No. 
But God will make it look like it's gone to shake us up so we turn back to him. Finally, now that the visual symbol of his presence was gone, Israel finally realized that his face had been turned away from them for a while, and they didn't even know it because they were walking away from him. God disciplines those he loves. I want to go back to Matthew chapter 11. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. God disciplines those he loves. So they change their course and won't share in the woes of his judgment. So they turn to him and believe. And then there's that Matthew chapter 11, the verses I read at the start. Come to me. All you are weary and heavy burden and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon me and learn from me. Let me close with this story. The captain of a ship looked into the dark night and he saw a faint light in the distance. So he immediately told the signalman to send a message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly a message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain was angry. His command had not been followed. It had been ignored, so he sent a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm the captain. Soon another message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm seaman third class Jones. (laughs) Immediately the captain sent a third message knowing the fear it would invoke. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm a battleship. Then the reply came, alter your course 10 degrees north. Did I just repeat that twice? I'm sorry. doesn't matter. (laughs) I am a lighthouse. (laughs) God's the lighthouse. And he's disciplining us. He's disciplining Israel. He's bringing judgments so they wake up and alter their course so that they can live with him forever. That's the gospel of Christ. Surrender to him. Let's pray. Lord God, teach us the glory of your holiness, your presence. Oh, how we need it. Let us walk with you. Let us know your glory. Let us see you do great things. Make us holy people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.